Welcome to the First Baptist Cadillac podcast. First Baptist Cadillac is a growing intergenerational family of faith whose mission is to make disciples of Jesus Christ. Join us each week as we engage God's word together. We would love to hear from you. Please contact us at firstbaptistcadillac.org or text WELCOME to 231-261-1112. Welcome to week number four of the sermon series, The Promise Our Savior Has Come, where each week during Advent, we've been looking at the fulfillment of God's promise of sending the Messiah through the eyes of some of the very first people who saw the promise fulfilled. And so just to retrace our steps, in week one, we talked about Simeon and highlighting the theme of hope. Week number two, the shepherds highlighting the theme of peace. Last week, it was Zechariah highlighting the theme of joy. And today, it is Mary. And what an incredible story is that of Mary. And we're going to be highlighting the theme of love. But before we dive deep into that, I just got to ask you the question, how many of you had your lives disrupted this week by wind? Raise your hand if you had your lives disrupted this week by wind, schools canceled, which is every parent's worst nightmare, right? Disrupting families. I know some of you who were at school, you had final exams that were scheduled and that got wild and crazy. Sporting events, extracurricular activities had to be canceled or rescheduled. Uh, How many of you lost electricity this week? Wow, don't we just take that for granted and just assume that, you know, you're going to hit the light switch and it's going to come on? All kinds of disruption coming to our lives, which reminds us, did anybody love the disruption? No, okay? It just reminds us that as human beings, we revolt against having our carefully planned and controlled lives disrupted. And so here's the main idea that we're going to be working with this morning. The main idea, and it's a hard one for us as we had experience with this week, to love is to embrace disruption. To love is to embrace disruption. To to lay aside your plans and your agenda for the good of someone else. To, To leave behind your orderly world and enter into someone else's disorder. That's love. To sacrifice your comfort for the purpose of suffering with another. That's embracing disruption. It is showing love. And the love chapter actually has a lot to say about this, but in particular, that line in 1 Corinthians 13 where it says, it does not insist on its own way. Anybody tantrum a little bit this week when your electricity was off and you're, you know, and you couldn't, you couldn't have Wi-Fi. What are we supposed to do in this world without Wi-Fi? It does not insist on its own way. That is love. It embraces the disruption. And I truly believe that one of the greatest examples of love that embraces disruption is Mary, the mother of Jesus. Consider how her life was disrupted and her response of love. Disrupted unlike any other, and yet she demonstrated true love for God by embracing the disruption that he brought into her life. Laying aside her will for his will, her agenda for his agenda. And so we encounter her story in Luke chapter 1, verse 26. And the passage kind of breaks down like this. We're going to just give you a roadmap where we're going today. The setting of the disruption, announcing the disruption, trusting in the midst of the disruption, explaining the disruption, and then embracing the disruption. And my prayer for all of us today 
as we find ourselves in various states of disruption, do we not? Some of you with literally life and death kinds of disruptions, many of us with less serious disruptions, but disruptions nonetheless that we will be ministered to as we see the example of Mary and consider her response. And so let's begin with the first of these, the setting of the disruption, where it says in verse 26, it says, in the sixth month, in the sixth month, which begs the question, to what does the sixth month refer? And the answer to that is, it has been six months since Elizabeth became pregnant with John the Baptist. And if you were not with us last week, it might be helpful some point this week to go back and watch the sermon about Zechariah and Elizabeth and John the Baptist. And we're going to refer to that quite a bit today. Um, so this time stamp, the sixth month, that connects these two stories together, which have some fascinating similarities and differences. And we're going to examine those a bit later. Well, in this sixth month, it says in verse 26, the angel Gabriel was sent from God to a city of Galilee named Nazareth. Now, if you were to to make a list of the places least likely for anything important to happen, Nazareth would probably be at or near the top. Four, it was a tiny town of no more than 2,000 people. And I tried, I was doing some Googling. It's like, what around us has about 2,000 people? Anybody have any good guesses or suggestions of tiny town around us, about 2,000 people we could compare Nazareth to? Who? Manton, maybe. I think Manton may be even a little bit smaller than that, but we'll use that for an example. Maybe Manton has some similarities with Nazareth. Um, It was about 80 miles north of Jerusalem. It was so obscure that it's never even mentioned in the Old Testament. You open your Old Testament, scan through it, no Nazareth, which is interesting because it winds up being such a significant place. And it may have actually been a good thing that it was not mentioned in the Old Testament because in the New Testament, it had a very poor reputation, likely due to the fact that if you think about it, being 80 miles away from Jerusalem, if you think of Jerusalem as the center of Jewish purity, the, the, the further you got away from that, the more diluted it became. And those who were in Galilee were viewed by the Judean Jews as being liberal, impure, watered down. And so you'll remember in the story of John's gospel, where Philip encounters Jesus. He wants to bring his brother Nathanael to see Jesus. And it says in John 1.45, Philip found Nathanael and said to him, We have found him of whom Moses and the law and also the prophets wrote, Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. And Nathanael said to him, Can anything good come out of Nazareth? And Philip said to him, Come and see. And so such was the stigma attached to Nazareth. And yet... That's where God showed up. That's where God sent the angel Gabriel. As it says in verse 27, to a virgin betrothed to a man whose name was Joseph of the house of David, and the virgin's name was Mary. Now, by the world's standards, Mary was a very common girl, a Nazareth girl, after all. And I just can't get past this part. She was believed to be between 12 and 14 years of age. 12 and 14, that was just the culture, that was the time, that's about the age when young girls got married. As with all peasant girls, she was illiterate, couldn't read or write. She would most likely hope to marry humbly, give birth to numerous poor children, 
never travel more than a few miles from home and one day die a peaceful death in her old age. That would be a good life for a Nazareth girl. It was this Mary humbly part that is particularly relevant to our story, for she was betrothed to a man named Joseph. And I find Joseph to be a very frustrating character in the scriptures, and maybe some of you do as well, because it just doesn't say a lot about him. We don't know a ton about this guy. We, we do know from the genealogy of Matthew 1 that he was a distant relative of King David. He is referred to as a carpenter in Matthew 13, 55. His actions in the Gospels are consistently righteous, but then sometime after Jesus' childhood, he just kind of disappears. He just kind of goes off the scene, which has led many to have all kinds of thoughts and theories about what became of Joseph. But at this point in our story, he is betrothed to Mary. And again, he's likely older than the 12 to 14-year-old Mary. The betrothal meant three things. Um, number one, Mary and Joseph were in the midst of their, the traditional one-year-long engagement. One year of engagement. And according to Jewish custom, Mary and Joseph were legally married during the engagement, the season of betrothal, but they did not live together, did not consummate the marriage until the wedding took place after that one year of engagement. And so they are technically husband and wife, even though they are not living together or having sexual relations. And so in this circumstance, to dissolve the marriage uh, or to, to dissolve betrothal would require a dissolution of the marriage or divorce. It was in this scenario that God broke into Mary's life, bringing about great disruption. So you think about where she's at. She's, she's planning the wedding. She's dreaming about what her Nazareth existence is going to be like in the years to come. And suddenly the angel comes. And we see in verse 28, and the angel Gabriel came to her and said, Greetings, O favored one, the Lord is with you. But she was greatly troubled at the saying and tried to discern what sort of greeting this might be. And the angel said to her, Do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. And he will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High. And the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father David. And he will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and of his kingdom there will be no end. Again, put yourself for a moment in Mary's sandals. You talk about disruption. This 14-year-old girl from Nazareth is in the midst of all the planning, thinking and dreaming of the wedding, and her quiet Nazareth life with Joseph when the angel shows up and disrupts it all and changes everything in an instant. And perhaps what was most shocking to Mary is, is what the angel said about the child. It's not just that she was going to have a child. It was the nature of this child. This was not a normal baby. And so let, let's see just in verses 31 through 33 what we can learn about this baby. There's a lot of good Christology in these few verses. These could be sermon after sermon just in this little bit right here. First of all, his name. The angel gives his name. Mary would not be given the liberty to choose the name for her child, he would already have a name. And it just happens to be the name that is above all names. Verse 31 begins, And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. 
Jesus comes from the Hebrew and Aramaic construct Yeshua, which literally means Yahweh saves or Yahweh is salvation. So it's fascinating that Jesus' name is his mission. Jesus' name is his mission. As it says in John 3.17, God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. That's his name. His very name is salvation. And the, as the angels told the shepherds, for unto you was born this day in the city of David a Savior. It's his name. Yeshua, who is Christ the Lord. Yahweh saves. Yahweh is salvation. And as that, that popular praise chorus says, what a beautiful name, the name of Jesus. So that's his name. Next is his stature in verse 32. His stature, it says, he will be great. It kind of sounds like Tony the Tiger a little bit there, didn't it? And, um, he will be great. Almost seems like an understatement, doesn't it? Yeah, Jesus is great. Um, but especially when you think about all that we experienced with Jesus in the book of Revelation, where I keep coming back to that Greek construct, pantokrator, the Almighty. Jesus, He is the Almighty, meaning that there is no one greater. He's it. He is it, as it says in Deuteronomy 10, 17. For the Lord your God is God of gods and Lord of lords, the great, the mighty, and the awesome God. Oh, that's so beautiful. Now, there is something for us to note here. Um, last week, when Gabriel appeared to Zechariah, it was also said of John the Baptist, for he will be great before the Lord. And so much so, um, Jesus said of John the Baptist in Matthew eleven eleven, truly I say to you, among those born of women, there has arisen no one greater than John the Baptist. Now, how about that for a seal of approval and of affirmation on your life? Jesus says, no one greater born of women than John the Baptist. That's hefty praise. John the Baptist was great, but make no mistake, while John the Baptist was great, his greatness pales in comparison to the ultimate greatness of Jesus. And accordingly, all greatness that we see, that we experience in this world, is derived and is subservient to the greatness of Jesus. And that includes the greatness of John the Baptist. And I think we, we see this demonstrated beautifully in the account where, we don't have time to read it all this morning, but of pregnant Mary visiting pregnant Elizabeth, Right? You know that story, and you remember what happened? Luke 1, and when Elizabeth heard the greeting of Mary, the baby, who was John the Baptist, leaped in her womb, and Elizabeth was filled with the Holy Spirit, and she exclaimed with a loud cry, Blessed are you, Mary, among women, and blessed is the fruit of your womb, and why is this granted to me that the mother of my Lord should come to me? For behold, when the sound of your greeting came to my ears, the baby, John the Baptist, in my womb leaped for joy. And I find it just so spectacular that even in the womb, the baby recognizes the greatness of Jesus and responds. I, I, I take that leaping to be that of worship. And many of you have seen this image on social media, and it certainly fits our text today. I think it's just gorgeous. The first person to recognize Jesus was an unborn child. Consider for a moment all of the ramifications of that. 
That unborn child leapt for joy in the presence of the Savior of the world, and such is the greatness of Jesus. Next, verses 31 through 33, in addition to telling us his name, his stature, it also tells us his nature. For verse 32 goes on to say, and he will be called the Son of the Most High. The Son of the Most High. We were familiar with that saying, right? Like father, like son, right? Except I'm certainly relieved in my case that as I age, it doesn't apply to me. I look nothing like my father, right? <laughs> well, um, like father, like son has never been more true than with Jesus and his father, because they are, in fact, the very same essence. His nature, the nature of Jesus, he is divine. This baby would be, who would be born to Mary is none other than God himself coming to earth in the flesh, fully God, and yet fully human, a mystery, but true. Which brings us to the next thing that we learn about this baby is his lineage. Verse 32 goes on to say, And the the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father David. Now, we might scratch our heads for a second. So in what sense is this baby, how, how can he have King David as his father? After all, it's about a thousand years between David and Jesus. Well, as we mentioned earlier, Matthew 1, Joseph is in the lineage of King David. And so, from an earthly perspective, Jesus would legally be known as the son of Joseph, placing Jesus in the lineage of David as well, and therefore able to fulfill the promise that God gave to King David a thousand years ago. 2 Samuel 7, 16, God says to David, "...in your house, David..." And your kingdom shall be made sure be forever before me, and your throne shall be established forever. So this would be accomplished through Mary's baby, legally Joseph's son from an earthly perspective, though in actuality the son of God. Next, these verses tell us about the baby's kingdom. His kingdom, verse 33, says, and he will reign over the house of Jacob. And of course, we know Jacob is synonymous with what? Israel. Israel. Jesus would come to be known as the king of the Jews, the long-expected Messiah. But what about us Gentiles? See, our king? Absolutely. Absolutely. The answer is yes. Romans eleven seventeen. We probably don't talk about this nearly enough. Romans eleven seventeen. But if some of the branches were broken off, this is referring to Israel, and you Gentiles, although a wild, wild olive shoot, were grafted in among the others and now share in the nourishing root of the olive tree. We get grafted in. We get grafted in to God's people. We're not into the whole replacement theology kind of thing where the church replaces Israel. That's not biblical, okay? Israel is Israel. Israel has a central and important role to play in God's timetable and how things play out. And we get to be a part of it. Jesus is the king of the Jews. He is ruling over Jacob. So his kingdom is all-encompassing, but it is centered in Israel. As we saw in our Revelation study, his throne will be where? The New Jerusalem, right? The New Jerusalem, exactly where you would expect the one who would reign over the house of Jacob to be, reminding us that there is a distinctly Jewish flavor to God's coming kingdom. Israel will be front and center. 
So, lastly, these verses tell us about his duration. How long will Jesus rule? You know, if you look back in the Old Testament and the kings of Israel and Judah, um, they all had a shelf life. They, they reigned for a certain number of years, some longer than others. How long will Jesus reign? Verse 33 goes on to say, and of his kingdom, there will be no end. As it says in the Hallelujah Chorus, the kingdom of this world is become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ and of his Christ. And he shall reign forever and ever, and he shall reign forever and ever, and he shall reign forever and ever, forever and ever, forever and ever. You get the idea? And for those of you who criticize modern day worship songs for being repetitious, ain't nothing new, okay? Ain't nothing new. An eternal rule without end, King Jesus will have no successor. So these three verses obviously are packed with important components of who this baby is, all about Christology. His name is Jesus. His stature is great. His nature is divine. His lineage is Davidic. His kingdom is all-encompassing, but centered in Israel, and his duration is forever. Now again, your 14-year-old Mary, and it's just a fire hose, isn't it? It's just like, let's get back to Mary's story. In the next part of the text, we see the trusting in the midst of the disruption. Verse 34, and Mary said to the angel, how will this be since I am a virgin? Now, if we're honest, that sounds a lot like Zachariah's response from last week, doesn't it? Where, where Zachariah said, how shall I know this? For I'm an old man and my wife is advanced in years. But curiously, if you remember, Zechariah was disciplined for his response and as a lack of faith. But Mary was not disciplined. Why? I told Christie, as we were talking about this yesterday, I think it's because women always get preferential treatment, right? <laughs> she didn't buy it. So what's this all about? Why does Zechariah get disciplined by having his mouth shut during that time of pregnancy, and whereas Mary, she ultimately is commended? John MacArthur explained it this way. He said, Mary's question was born out of wonder, not doubt, nor disbelief. So the angel did not rebuke her as he had Zechariah. So while the wording of the responses is eerily similar, obviously their hearts were different. Mary was filled with puzzlement, not doubt. She did not question that it was going to happen, but was curious about how. And so Mary trusted God in the midst of the disruption, even when it didn't make sense. There's the true test for us as followers of Jesus Christ, isn't it? When God disrupts our lives and we don't understand, and it turns our world upside down, much as it did for Mary... Will we trust like Mary did? When we think about the sacrifice that was being asked of Mary in this situation, I don't think we even begin to grasp how significant it was. Number one, she was going to have a ruined reputation, was she not? She'd be known as an unwed mother with an unbelievable story. I mean, think of the scandal in this little village of 2,000 people as Mary's pregnant. She's not, she has not had the wedding yet. And she's telling people, you know, this baby in me, it's from God. I'm sure most, if not all, are not buying that story. A ruined reputation. 
uh, broken trust with her fiancé. She has to tell that same story to Joseph. Joseph, it's God who made me pregnant. And then possibly even stoning, because according to the Jewish law, that was the penalty for the sin of adultery. And of course, everybody in Nazareth would come to the conclusion, conclusion Mary was guilty of adultery. And yet, in spite of all this, she leaves for us an example of how we are to respond when God brings disruption to our lives. We are to trust. So next is explaining the disruption. The the, the angel gives more details in verse 35. The angel answered her, Mary, the Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. Therefore, the child to be born will be called Holy, the Son of God. And behold, your relative Elizabeth in her old age has also conceived a son. And this is the sixth month with her who who was called barren. For nothing will be impossible with God. Not even a virgin birth. Which is absolutely necessary for our salvation. Let me explain why. In the Old Testament, the children of Israel were commanded to sacrifice a lamb. But not any kind of lamb. Not, you can just choose any old lamb from your flock. It had to be a lamb without spot or blemish as atonement for their sins. Scripture was clear. Without the shedding of blood, there could not be the forgiveness of sins. In the New Testament, it says the wages of sin is death. But again, the sacrifice had to be a spotless sacrifice. And then in the New Testament, John 1.29, when John the Baptist sees Jesus coming toward him, um, he saw Jesus coming toward him and said, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. So Jesus, the Savior, Yahweh saves, the manner of salvation is that Jesus would be the lamb who would make atonement for our sins, the once and for all sacrifice. But for him to fulfill that role, what kind of lamb was necessary? A spotless lamb, a pure lamb, a sinless lamb. In God's economy, we inherit our sin from our spiritual forefather Adam, and it is then passed from generation to generation through our human fathers. Well, in Jesus' virgin birth, the human father, Jacob, Joseph, I'm sorry, Joseph has been taken out of the picture, and therefore sin has been taken out of the picture. Therefore, Jesus, not having a human father, would be qualified to be the pure, spotless lamb who takes away the sin of the world. And then Jesus went on, as we know, to live a sinless life, thus the necessity of of the virgin birth. And, you know, for people who say theology is boring, theology isn't interesting, I don't get it. That's fascinating to me, just how it all fits together. And um, so much more here than just, um, you know, in our culture when we get those self-help, feel-good platitudes about being your best. This, this is meat, and this is solid, and this is what God came to do. And God didn't give us just some um, words of self-help and um, improvement. He came to give us doctrine that saves, and um, that makes all the difference in the world. As it says in 1 Peter 1.18, knowing that you were ransomed from the feudal ways inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things as silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. The necessity of the virgin birth. 
Which leads us to the final point in our outline, embracing of the disruption. Verse 38, I got to tell you, I wrote it in your notes in your bulletin this morning, one of my favorite verses in all the Bible. One of my favorite verses in all the Bible. Verse 38, and Mary said, Behold, I am the servant of the Lord. Let it be to me according to your word. And the angel departed from her. These words from a 14-year-old girl who just kissed goodbye so many of her dreams. Gone is the big wedding celebration. Gone is her reputation. Gone, perhaps, is the trust of her betrothed. But Mary understood her identity in the Lord as a servant. And as a servant of God, Mary's body and her life was not her own. Her reputation was not her own. Her future was not her own. Who they belong to? The Master. As it says in 1 Corinthians 6, 19, or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God? You are not your own. You are not your own. For you were bought with a price. So glorify God in your body. How we need to be reminded of that simple yet powerful truth that we are not our own. This life that we have been given, it is a gift from God and is therefore to be lived for God. And what a wonder, again, that this 14-year-old girl in such incredible circumstances could model for us just how to apply this to our lives. Now, before we get in depth about application, I, I just got to pull out something here for you a second because, again, I think it, it highlights the beauty and the symmetry, the connection of Scripture. And you guys know how excited I get when those, those dots are, are connected. But um, between the Zachariah and Elizabeth story and the Mary and Joseph story, there are these fascinating comparisons and contrasts, similarities and differences. So let's first look at some comparisons, if you will. In both stories, Elizabeth and Zechariah last week, and then Mary and Joseph this week, um, the angel Gabriel shows up with the announcement. He begins by saying, don't be afraid. Um, those who are receiving the greeting from the angel, they respond with a question. We saw that in Zechariah. We saw that with Mary. Both are given a sign, and in both cases, it leads to a miraculous birth. For um, Elizabeth and Zechariah, it was a baby to a barren couple in their old age. And for Mary and Joseph, it was a virgin birth. But then there are these contrasts because there are great differences. For Elizabeth and Zechariah, Mary and Joseph, um, the visitation for Elizabeth and Zechariah, Jerusalem, the holy city, was the setting. But for Mary and Joseph, it was Nazareth, an obscure podunk village in the middle of nowhere. For Elizabeth and Zechariah, it was the temple. Mary and Joseph, it was a humble home. Zechariah was a respected male priest. Mary was a lowly female teenager. Zechariah responded with unbelief, but Mary responded with faith. And there's one I would add to this. It's not on the, the chart itself, but I think about the ramifications and the outcome. For, for Zechariah, the news brought great joy to the community, didn't it? And it, it removed stigma 
for Elizabeth and Zachariah, whereas for Mary and Joseph, it was not the removal of stigma, it was the addition of stigma. And so some great comparisons and some great contrasts, and I just love how Scripture fits together. All right, let's talk application. How should we then live? Let's return to the main idea that we started with today. Let's not lose it. To love is to embrace disruption, to lay aside your plans and your agenda for the good of someone else, to leave behind your orderly world and enter into someone else's disorder, to sacrifice your comfort for the purpose of suffering with another. And the place that we need to see this, first and foremost, is in the incarnation. Jesus himself came to earth experiencing great disruption. As it says in Philippians 2.5, have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but he emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. You talk about disruption. Can you think about leaving heaven behind to come here where it's cold and you get hungry? And there's conflict and there's violence and there's sin. In heaven, no sin, no conflict, no pain, only love. Jesus had lived for eternity past in perfect harmony of a holy triunity with the Father and the Spirit. And he left it behind, allowing it to be disrupted to come because God so loved the world. But as we know, the life he lived was only part of the disruption. There was also the crucifixion, for it says in verse 8, And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. And this is the ultimate disruption, right? To be nailed to a cross, which may help to put some of our earthly disruptions and our frustrations in proper perspective. And it prompts us to respond with the highest praise for the one who loved us so much, that he left behind the glory of heaven to experience the darkness of earth. Which is why, number two, we need to embrace the disruption of our justification. And by justification, I mean that miracle of God that by his grace, we are invited to be saved by putting our trust in Jesus alone for the forgiveness of our sins, and we are declared righteous. We become children of God. But here's the disruptive part of that. And I would contend if your life was not disrupted by that, by this, by justification, perhaps you need to ask yourself the question, was I really saved in the first place? Because here's the thing, 2 Corinthians 5.17, therefore if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. We are different. We are changed. We are new when we come to know Christ. As Jesus told Nicodemus, we are born again. Is there anything disruptive about having a baby? Yeah. Likewise, spiritually speaking, to be born again is to experience great upheaval and disruption in our lives because we are not who we used to be. When we have baptisms, believers' baptism by immersion, when we dunk them in the water, that's a picture of death. Spiritual death, disruption. We are nailed with Jesus Christ to the cross. We die with him. Disruption for the purpose of being raised to newness of life just as he was raised from the dead. 
And so if you somehow came into this thinking, you know, if I just pray this prayer, say the right words so that I won't have to go to hell, but then think that you can just kind of go about business as usual, that's not justification. That is not saving faith. That is not what this is all about. And I would just challenge you to examine your heart and to say, to what degree have you welcomed disruption that God brings when he saves us, making us new? Number three, we must embrace the disruption of our sanctification. Our sanctification. By sanctification, I mean the process whereby God makes us more and more like Jesus, where he conforms us to his image. And in order for that to happen, our old fleshly existence will have to be disrupted. And we will have to embrace that disruption to become more Christ-like. To put it simply, listen carefully, there is no spiritual growth without disruption. Amen? There is no spiritual growth without disruption. Without that purifying fire of the Holy Spirit meant to burn away our impurities. That's disruptive. That's even painful. But it is necessary and it is good. Therefore, we must embrace the disruption of our sanctification. When's the last time on your knees before God you said, whatever it takes, God, whatever it takes to make me like Jesus, I give you permission. I surrender. I submit to you. I just want to know Jesus. That's what it means to embrace the disruption of our sanctification. And then number four, embrace the disruption of your mission, of your mission. As we've seen with Mary's story, to follow Jesus is to embrace the disruption for whatever purpose God has for our lives. Just as she expressed in verse 38. I'm going to read it again because it's so good. And Mary said, Behold, I am the servant of the Lord. Let it be to me according to your word. And the angel departed from her. You know, in various places in chapter 1, if you kind of do a, a scan of it, we, Mary belonged to the Lord, body, soul, and spirit. Body, soul, and spirit. So much so that Warren Wearsby, the commentator, he said, Mary's believing response was to surrender herself to God as his willing servant. She experienced the grace of God and believed the word of God, and therefore she could be used by the Spirit to accomplish the will of God. And so it is to be with us. As we surrender our hearts, our lives, our very beings, body, soul, and spirit to Jesus for the mission of making disciples of Jesus Christ, of being agents of salvation, reaching others with the good news of Jesus Christ. Well, as we put a bow on this, um, all of this, I believe, can be summed up in one powerful image that I came across recently. Some of you have maybe seen it on Facebook or on the internet, but I just think, you know, that, that thing, a picture is worth a thousand words. This picture may be worth a million words, right? Let's pray. Holy Spirit, would you do a deep work in our lives today in those places where we are resistant to your work? Whether that be in our justification, our sanctification, or in terms of mission. God, it is just our flesh. Our flesh does not like disruption. We do not like discomfort. We do not like being out of control. And yet you have called us like Mary 
to be humble servants. As the chorus says, all to Jesus I surrender. All to Him I freely give. God, I pray that that prayer would be going up all over the sanctuary, all over the commons, all over places where people are watching from home. We surrender all, just as Mary did. We love you because you first loved us. So God, Father, we give you ourselves without reservation. This is our prayer in Jesus' name. Amen.